Hello, everybody. Welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. This is a recovery podcast. We are back. I haven't been on the air in about nine months. Uh, we revamped this new studio, um, and I wanted to bring a very special guest on today. First, I do want to describe the podcast. is uh, It's a recovery podcast. Uh, we we have various guests from all walks of life that um, that their lives uh, revolve around recovery. Some of them are addicts, former addicts or alcoholics that are in recovery, people with mental health. And uh, I often love to bring professionals on, people that work in the field of addiction and alcoholism and mental health and uh, have firsthand experience and hear their outlook. So I'm very, very blessed today to have uh, been introduced a while back to Dr. B. Dr. B works in the field of addiction. You're an addiction doctor. That's right. And um, it's, you know, I, who better than have you as my first guest? Um, uh, so I wanted to, today's topic is Trank, Trank uh, dope that's out there on the streets right now. Um, you want to go right into it and let's talk about Trank and I'll ask some questions too. Sure. We'll, we'll get into it. I know we are on live on multiple platforms. Some yes. of yours, Facebook, YouTube, and mine, Facebook and YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, hi, everybody out there. I'm so happy to be back on. Uh, I'm wondering if it's okay with you. Uh, uh, some of my viewers probably don't know you and mm-hmm. we have known each other sort of by, uh, in some bizarre ways for quite some time. Sure. We have mutual friends. We have, uh, mutual, uh, kind of business associates. I think. Yes. Uh, you know, say. Do you mind? Uh, I, I want them to uh, I don't know mind a little bit about you, what you do right okay. now, at least my viewers, sure. maybe some of your viewers, and I'm on TikTok as well. Okay. So I want to say hi to everybody. I want to do these lives more often. Mm-hmm. I'd like to maybe do more stuff with Pedge as well. He's really, really uh, good stuff. So tell uh, to okay. the extent that you want to, tell us a little bit about you, and okay. uh, we'll Great. get warmed up. So I am Pej. Um, I am an Iranian American that was raised here in America since the age of five. I have been work. I'm in recovery myself. I'm coming up on 16 years in June. Uh, I was a, a very, uh, you know, there was a lot of trauma that was in my background, but also a lot of drug use, a lot of um, alcoholism and things like that. So I got sober because I was pretty much, there was a soul sickness. There was a lot of things that had happened to me throughout my life that should have got me sober, but it was, I just got to a point in my life where I wanted to get help. And when I got help, uh, I went in through a recovery home. It was a Persian recovery home. I actually went to make the Persian family happy in the beginning, but almost immediately I was taken out on these adventures where we were um, doing interventions on people. Uh, the people that were my mentors were kind of demonstrating what it's like to go into a family setting, a family system, and um, seeing how family dynamics function and how um, how somebody's loved one uh, might be enabled or might be living in a certain type of environment where um, they're probably not going to get better because uh, the family's kind of just as sick as them. And so early on, I, I just was really turned on to trying to help people. And um, so I went to school. I went to uh, to college to learn drug and alcohol studies. I uh, I wanted to become a counselor, you know, a, a case manager and a counselor during that time. Finished top of my class. Never did good in school before that because I was always under the influence. So uh, lo and behold, when you get sober, you pay attention in class. You uh, you actually get your assignments done. You do well in quizzes, and that's what happened. I got on the dean's list, and um, and I started working in addiction treatment almost immediately uh, after finishing school. So I worked in adolescent facilities, and then I worked in uh, 
in uh, adult treatment too. And uh, on the front lines, I'm talking, I've, I've done every, I've held every type of position outside of being a therapist in the treatment system. So I've been a tech, I've been a case manager, I've been a program director, I've been a uh, admissions counselor. And then later on, I got into uh, intervention work. And when I went into that realm of, of this type of work, I wanted to uh, pretty much be out there and help people get the help that they need, whoever they are, whatever their purpose is. So I started doing that uh, professionally. I was direct. I was uh, taught under the direction of a, a world-renowned interventionist named Earl Hightower. Um, he's still my mentor mentor to this day. He showed me the ins and outs, the do's and the don'ts. Of, and then I went and uh, did intervention studies extensively. And, uh, you know, again, I already had been doing interventions under the direction of Earl, but then now I'm um, almost certified. I will be a certified interventionist probably within a few weeks. Um, but I've been doing interventions for at least 10 years. Um, wow. Now, also, I got into, uh, through mutual friends that we both have, there's somebody that I used to have a podcast with, and he started another company, and he kept telling me, Pez, you need to get into the TikTok space. I'm like, that's for kids. I don't see that going anywhere. I don't know. He said, actually, your your message is a strong message, and it will be carried a lot farther than what you're doing right now when you're limited to places like Facebook and such. But um, I told him, okay, let, let's give it a shot. And I got into uh, the TikTok world and then YouTube world. And um, next thing you know, within a couple of years, consistently making uh, you know a plethora of, of videos in relation to my experiences, my uh, my personal experiences, or what I have seen with people that are suffering from addiction, alcoholism, and such. Um, I just made a lot of videos, and and now I'm recognized by mostly the youth. Like there's a lot of young people that are often turning to me for direction in life. Uh, a lot of them are going through that curious phase, the, the uh, experimental phase. Some of them are actually getting into heavy um, heavy substances and, and questioning, should I be doing this? And so they often turn to me for counsel. A lot of them will ask me questions or I'll see people in public. They say, I know you from TikTok. Uh, aren't you that guy? But uh you know, we started a podcast with that particular person where we wanted to get our message uh, uh, out there before called Sober Grind. But then uh, when I kind of went solo and wasn't attached to a treatment center, uh, I started my own podcast during the pandemic called Peggy's Recovery Corner. And it was kind of just out of an office that I had and and um, I would have guests on. And, and so uh, for a long time it was running and then I wanted to actually have a studio, a place where it was more of a comf comfortable setting and we could sit with guests and and talk to guests like yourself, such as yourself, and and uh, be able to learn. You know, I, I'm all about educating, teaching, um, and learning. And also, um, I believe sometimes some of the best experiences that people can relate to is is people's life experiences. Sure. You know, so um, that's you know who I am. I was a little drawn out, but now let's talk about you and what you do and also we can get on the subject of crank uh, sure I, we were going to get on crank guys i promise nicole's out there your questions will pop up we have an hour and a half today i'm going to i'll talk about me briefly i want to just add a little something so it sort of ties uh this whole thing in for those of you that have uh, uh seen my lives uh, as you know i don't do lives with too many people because i'm very particular about who i'll go on live with most of you out there know dodd and parham parham is the psychologist that all of you ask me about or come into my office at times or send me emails. Well, there's an interesting connection here, and a lot of you know about Parham's background. 
these two guys got cleaned together about 16 years ago. We do. Okay? So uh, 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 there's no financial relationship at all between the three of us. Uh, uh, it's just simply mutual respect. And regardless of how we see things, I think it's our moral compass and approach to substance abuse, the people dealing with it, what one is supposed to do, and just a general mutual respect all around. And uh, uh, and again, this is the first time we've met in person, but yeah. I've known about Pitch, and I also have known about his TikTok, his YouTube, all the other stuff, and I always uh, watch it. So that's a little bit of background to tie it all in. We, me, him, and Parham, the super therapist, we all have a relationship here. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as me, for uh, your audience, um, you basically said, I'm an, uh, I'm an addiction medicine doctor. Historically, <clears throat> uh, for most of my career, I was an academic emergency physician. Uh, and I worked at the, you know, I was a professor of emergency medicine. I saw patients. I treated patients. Uh, I uh, uh, trained doctors, medical students, graduate students. I would do research uh, and so forth several years ago. You know, part, and people say, well, how'd you get into substance abuse? Well, part of what you do as an emergency medicine physician, if you're really doing real medicine, is toxicology and a subfield of that is substance abuse, overdoses, and so forth. There's other places where I get digging deep into that of how that I really got pushed into this. But at some point, about five, six years ago, I left the academic university world and uh, went into private practice. I have, uh, uh, I don't really work and I don't do any me medical directorships with any programs or detoxes and so forth because I don't want to. I started a lot of my own programs. I had a nonprofit IOP. I had a evidence-based re-entry housing instead of a sober housing, which really dealt with youth at risk, kids coming out of juvenile ha hall, um, uh, uh, guys getting out of prison. Uh, but at this time, I strictly run Zephyr Medical Group, which is a dedicated substance abuse medical office. Mm -hmm. Let's get started uh, with uh, Trank Dope. Trank Dope, it's the new thing everyone's talking about, huh? So, uh, you know, I've heard of Trank now for a few months. Uh, obviously, I, I'd heard that it actually <clears throat> kind of hit the streets and originated probably in the Philadelphia area, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and now it's it's kind of migrated and it's it's made its way around the United States. Um, more recently, just last weekend, I was doing an intervention in Hollywood on the streets of Hollywood with a homeless couple. And the young man was talking about this flesh eating drug that's out there and how he's trying to avoid that. But lately it's been um, it, it kind of gets mixed with fentanyl even for that. Like it's, 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 it's all. So t tell us about Trank, like what? Because you're the doctor and you know exactly what it is. It's, it's, it's the, the name, the actual name of Trank, what it originates from and what it does. Sure. Trank uh, is a reference to tranquilizer. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And in particular, it's referring to the component of Trank dope, which is called xylazine. Mm -hmm. I forgot what the, someone out there could remind us, but the brand name of xylazine. Of xylazine yeah. And xylazine, an animal tranquilizer, and Trank dope is a mixture of xylazine and fentanyl. Uh, and that's what they refer to as Trank for dope. I want to uh, uh, add to something that you said. It didn't originate in uh, in Philly. In fact, this stuff has been over around for over 20 years. Okay. And it originated with the Puerto Rican community. And in fact, there was probably use, misuse, and abuse 
in Puerto Rico or the uh, you know immigrant community here. So it's been around. Well, you know, I was going to say um, <clears throat> it's reminiscent of Crocodile, yeah, that's right. which was obviously in Florida for a while. But also, I know that in Iran, there is a certain type of drug that's flesh-eating called kerak. They call it kerak, which sounds like crack, but it's not crack cocaine, right? It's it's a combination of certain drugs, and I think a lot of uh, people that are addicted, that get addicted to it, uh, over a period of time, they're using it, and they're not conscious of what's happening to them physically, mentally, and then all of a sudden, parts of their limbs and things like that are getting getting highly affected. So it seems like these these drugs are along the same lines i don't know what that drug is but i will buy uh, let me uh, i'll get into the flesh eating thing yeah. and you know i think one of the great things about when we do output like this yes. uh, i want to uh, not only am i fighting to decrease stigma on people the way people use uh, look at substance abuse uh, clients or addicts or whatever you want to yes. call it. I try not to use the term addict because I think that stigmatizes. Sure. But I want to dispel myths. I want to, uh, there's no mysteries in this world. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, and I think the way this stuff gets into the media and gets out there, right. Uh, you know, we're, we're already suffering from lack of meaningful, formal, uh, evolved information in all areas of our life. Right. And in this one area, I want to try to dispel myths when I can okay. and substance abuse. So, uh, so first, and I'll get to that flesh eating first, you know, it's xylazine. It's an animal tranquilizer sedative. They cut it with the fentanyl. Why? Because this stuff is easy to get. It's not even uh, uh, FDA. It's not even DEA uh, structured. So as an animal veterinary medicine, mm -hmm. it's pretty easy for guys to get. That being said, there's no super labs or uh, crappy labs. It's pretty easy to get for these guys, and they're probably cutting it with the fentanyl, getting it out there, and it's easy to do. And this, you're going to see permutations of this over. I made a video a couple of years ago. The new drug addict, you know, 50 years ago, that was the heroin addict, or 60 years ago, or 70 years ago. Sure. You know, it was a beatnik guy. It was a guy that was reading Allen Ginsberg, William Barrow, sitting yes. in some place drinking coffee. The meth stimulant speed guy was a uh, you know Caucasian gang. Uh, biker, biker gang, biker gang yeah. guy, very different uh, sociocultural dispositions, attitudes, and subcultures. Mm -hmm. That's no longer the case. Yeah. Drug addict, you know, someone who's using drugs, man, everything goes in there. That itself, its own phenomena that takes quite a bit of sociological and psychological exploration and approach to treatment. Mm -hmm. I'll leave that aside. Let's, and I think uh, at this point, you asked about the wound thing. Mm -hmm. uh, again, let's step back and look at the historicity and evolution of wounds and drugs. Yes. What people don't realize is anybody putting a needle in their arm mm -hmm. has been suffering as a secondary consequence of that, of getting wound infections and a whole bunch of other stuff, endocarditis, blood infections, septicemia, and so forth. Mm -hmm. This has been going on ever since, whether you're putting meth in your uh, system or heroin. Sure. Then with fentanyl, they, you know, when it came, people started to use it on the street, there was this like, oh, my God, the number of you know, people are getting more uh, wound infections. Mm -hmm. Now, <clears throat> you can't attribute that necessarily to the fentanyl. There's a difference between association and causation, right? Mm -hmm. yes. you know, it could be. Because fentanyl is short acting and the user's dosing more times through a day, mm -hmm. you're creating more friction, more trauma, more events where you have contact with the skin and the risk and rate of wound infections goes up. Okay. Right? So we want to keep that in sure. mind. Now we bring this thing in. 
we got to look globally at this, right? The average person that's taking something like this and putting it in their arm, they already have a weakened, decreased immune system, system yep. in general. Makes they sense. already have poor access and poor volition and will to seek medical care, mm -hmm. have good nutrition, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Respond to their most immediate physical needs. So they're already much more susceptible to infections as it is. Right. Now let's move, is xylazine causing this, right? And uh, what do we know about xylazine that could be potentially causing this? You know, thus far, the only thing that I can say is that uh, because it's this thing called the alpha-2 agonist, uh, immediately it has a local vasoconstriction effect, which means the blood vessels narrow. Okay. Well, when your blood vessels narrow, you know, uh, potentially, again, some of this theoretically, because when you talk about a diabetic person with peripheral, uh, uh, you know, vascular disease, they're going to have foot infections, right? Mm -hmm. Blood flows less down there, a bunch of other stuff too, but now you can't get the immune cells down there. You can't clean things up. In that same sense, there could be some local effect mm -hmm. from someone who already has a, a debilitated, weakened immune system. And when you get that vasoconstriction, the blood vessel narrows, yes. you're not getting the blood flow to uh, fight off infections. And, and that's one possibility. But, you know, uh, you start to hear, well, people are also getting wounds elsewhere with this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Intravenously. That's interesting, right? So you let's say you're banging dope in your arm, but you, you get that wound in your leg. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you look at that guy again. You're wondering, well, there's lifestyle issues, there's environmental issues, there's a general approach to their own health that's already debilitated. We want to keep that in mind. Then I do know that in certain places, mm -hmm. uh, the guys that are dealing with this stuff are recommending people as a harm reduction approach, you know what, snort this stuff or ingest it. Uh, and I don't want to talk about too much about the number of ways you can take this because right. I don't want to teach anybody anything. Right, but right. one of the things those guys are doing is telling folks, dude, stop shooting this Do stuff it this up, way, inject so, it. Yeah, yeah. That being said, I've also heard reports, and we call this anecdotal evidence in medicine. It's a lowest form of evidence, uh, but it doesn't mean it's crappy. It just needs to build up. I'm getting reports that even folks that are snorting it uh, are getting wounds elsewhere. I don't know how true that is, but it's something to keep in mind. If you're injecting something in your body, at the very least, you're susceptible to an infection at that local site. You get an infection because of your environment, you're already susceptible to MRSA or other resistant uh, medications, and you're not getting good wound cleansing mm -hmm. or clinical care and you're not seeking help. Mm. But it gets a little complicated in this picture because we're also saying people that snorted, it shows up elsewhere and so on. But really, uh, uh, so that's that. And the wounds that are presenting, just so everyone knows, these aren't any kind of special particular wounds that are particular to this issue. These are the range and spectrum of soft tissue infections that anybody gets from different reasons, right? But the end stage of the wound is the same as far as biochemically, as far as physiologically. And the treatment mm -hmm. is the same as any chronic wound one have. In fact, some of them that have eschars at the end, that's the same as a wound that has been burned that's healing. So mm -hmm. these are amendable to clinical treatment mm -hmm. and they've been having success but I think the patient's already debilitated. So it's a wound. I'm not sure why it's being caused. Uh, certainly there's an association with xylazine, but I want to take away some of the stigma and fear that people might have 
from someone that's using, you know, in the same way they're like, oh my God, don't touch him. He used fentanyl. You'll, you'll, you'll overdose. You'll, no, you won't overdose. Get first responder there, start CPR, get this guy to the hospital and uh, don't be insane because in the, in, in the physical universe, as we know it or any other dimension, you can't get fentanyl overdose by helping someone that's been overdosed from fentanyl. That being said, that's all I want to do in this case uh, mm -hmm. is decrease the stigma on that. And I hope I answered some of your questions on that. I think you answered my questions very well. Um, so that's really good insight. I mean, it's so good to hear from somebody that's actually have you had any patients that actually uh, have used Trank? We have not yet. I suspect uh, uh, at some point here, I'm certainly uh, educating my staff and so forth on it. Uh, uh, I, you told me, and I think someone else, it's showing up in Hollywood. It's certainly made its way and it's making its way across the country. Uh, and I'm sure I will have them because in the Santa Ana area, there's a lot of uh, junk going around. Right. So they're going to present. And my staff is fully educated and ready like we're pretty much ready to see it. Probably yeah, we're ready to streets. see it. And um, you bringing that up, I want to bring up one other thing about how Trank went from you know being in the community early 2000s, and uh, what actually happened is they started to note an increase in overdose deaths you know, especially in the Philly area, you know, yeah. and, you know, something going from like 2% to 30%, you know, whatever that had uh, xylazine in the dough. I saw some of those. Yeah. Some of and those data. numbers were climbing radically. And I think that's what brought it to the forefront. In addition to the experience of the front guy fighters and uh, seeing that and this stuff, you can't test it, uh, you know, on the typical, and it might've been around much longer because you got to send this stuff to the lab, get chromatography. There's no point of care urine testing for it. You got to be looking for it and you got to order it and you got to wait a week at this time. This might change in the future to get this stuff. So I might be getting urines that already has tranked open it, but I can't pick it up, but I'm certainly aware of it. And I just wanted to add that. Part That's here. great. Um, you know, a lot of people ask, where does this stuff come from? Who's making this? Who, who's distributing it? Um, I mean, obviously, if there's a book out called Fentanyl Incorporated, right? And it, it, it talks extensively about how, I mean, fentanyl has been around forever, since the 60s, I believe. That's, and it's used in, in, a, in, a, in a surgical process, usually, or in, in a doctor's uh, care. Yeah, uh, so procedural sedations, but I used it a lot myself in my career uh -huh. because, and you know, that stigma on fentanyl, I'm mm -hmm. like, dude, this stuff is amazing. Why, what, what's wrong with when I first kind of hit the street? Sure. There's a place for it. It's short acting. It gets out of, you know, if you, if, if you came in and you were a victim of a motor vehicle accident sure. and I, I got to sedate you, I got to put you in a, intubate you and so forth. I do my thing, save your life, get you going and so forth. I want some pain control. But the neurosurgeon is going to come in about 45 minutes and he needs to do a minimal neuro exam and we need to do a coma scale. Mm -hmm. Well, fentanyl is great. You know why? When I turn it off, it doesn't take long to get out of your system. Right. Right. Yeah. So there's many places for it. Sure. So, I mean, so it, it definitely, I digressed on fentanyl. But. Oh, I get it. It serves its purpose in, in a medical setting, yeah. most definitely. What I started seeing, because I've been working in addiction treatment for um, almost 15 years, right? And I saw probably about... 12 years ago, we were starting to get patients that were coming into a treatment setting that had been abusing their fentanyl patches and their fentanyl mm -hmm. lollipops that were prescribed to somebody else, sometimes even to themselves. And um, some of them were opiate users. So uh, it was easy to, to abuse what they were getting. 
craze that we really started seeing more was uh, in the last six, seven years where, uh, and it wasn't through these fake blues, the, the M3s that are out there, but it was more people were really using fentanyl in a powder form or rock form, right? So distribution of that, a lot of people theorize or actually it's, it's factual that it's, it's from China or it's also distributed through South America into America. Um, but it's out there, you know, and now with the, with a drug like, uh, xylazine, which is actually, I mean, it's, it's used in a veterinary setting. And I don't think that it's uh, regulated right now. Right. Like you had mentioned. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, you know, unlike most sedatives, hypnotics, uh, pain medication, analgesics, even in the veterinary setting that, uh, you know, has some DEA regulation like human stuff, uh -huh. this particular one doesn't. So it's much easier, easier for folks to get from the manufacturer because now, now it doesn't have that second layer of, which is probably going to change soon. Yeah. doesn't have that second layer of protection. Let's say if you wanted to get uh, carfentanil, right. Uh, uh, you know, people call it elephant trank. Uh, uh, it's, it's related to fentanyl. Sure. If you want to get that, that's hard to get. Right. Yeah. Uh, but this stuff has been easy to get. Easy to get. So my whole thing of, of when I hear about people ask me all the time, so how's this stuff like, where's it coming from? Who's getting it out there? Uh, if you look like within the last 24 hours, there have been um, trank busts uh, in, in mass quantities mm -hmm. and you're seeing them in, in a pill form. And, um, and it, one has to wonder like, so who comes up with these bright ideas to mix the two, right? The, the way the kid described it to me, he's a 23 year old kid. And he's doing fentanyl right in front of me, saying he's just not ready yet. I mean, I've, I've been working on this case for a little while, trying to get him and the girlfriend to have this realization, like, this lifestyle is not going to bring you any. We're going to die out here, right? Like, you're not even from the state, and you're hanging in areas where it's dog-eat-dog. Dog, they're going to get you. You know, and, and they tell me things like, um, well, you know, like, I'm not doing I, – I have my – what I do is under control. I'm not like so-and-so – that does that trank stuff that's out there right now. Um, and so I get curious. I'm like, so tell me about that so-and-so and the trank stuff that he's using. Oh yeah. Well, that guy's got all kinds of stuff going on with his legs and there's, there's sores and things like that. I don't want that stuff to happen to me. And, and I think to myself, like these are homeless people that live in tents, like who's out there making this stuff and getting it to them. I mean, obviously, you know, it could be many from many different areas or, but is it a chemist? Is it, is it, what do you assume? Yeah. So I'm going to answer that, but I thought what was fascinating, uh, there's a, a intrapsychic dynamic mm -hmm. going from uh, this person. Two years ago, this person may have not known about trank dope and someone would say, dude, you're doing fentanyl. Uh, my God, you know, we used to do heroin. That's okay. Yeah. Now he, the fentanyl guy sitting and saying, I'm okay. He's doing uh, trank dope. The, the, He's minimizing what, what could happen. Yeah, and yeah. the degree of fantastic delusions that we create to cope with our reality well is said. something uh, uh, of quite interest to me. So mm -hmm. I'll leave me that too. that. And we'll, we can do a podcast just we will. talking we will. about that kind I'm of I'm going to have you on here a lot, uh, and I want to be on yours too. I love that. But uh, uh, but as far as uh, in terms of that, so keep in mind, fentanyl is synthetic manufactured it's hard to get from the legitimate places. So it is the case that you need a sophisticated operation in China. And that's why, you know, uh, you know, it's coming from China. They're saying it is, it's being manufactured. Sure. There's a labs in Mexico and so forth. Mm -hmm. It's a complex drug to manufacture. And I actually think it's silly that you, uh, 
prohibit China's uh, fentanyl manufacturing in any way because, man, has that has has source suppression ever worked? It didn't work no. in Colombia. It didn't work with the crops. It didn't work with, you know, you put a, a pa Pablo Escobar or what's his name? The Mexican guy, um, the big uh, drug chapel. Chapo, yeah. you know, you, you're going to spend twenty five million dollars in 15 years and get that guy in prison. OK, I'm not this has nothing to do with my judgment of him, but I'm going to tell you this. The next question a reasonable, rational public should ask is that money spent 15 years, those kinds of resources. Now he's behind bars. My next question is what happened to the production of illicit substances that he was doing? Is it less? And has substance abuse and overdose deaths gone down? If it hasn't, who gives a shit? <laughs> You're right. So that's my thought. Very well said. On, you know, it, it, we, we've decided to live in fantasies. That's sure. another issue. Now, as far as the, uh, this stuff, tranked up, uh, no. Like I said, uh, Trank is easy to get from the legitimate manufacturers. That's mm -hmm. number one. And uh, number two, the process is called salting. I don't know if you've heard that with Trank, though. Well, tell us about it's it. It's salting. So you get it uh, in chemistry so, uh, to, you know, salt something. Salt, uh, you know, it's a crystalline structure, right? Uh -huh. They take it out of liquid form. It's very easy to salt anything. And do they cook uh, it? Uh, no, I, I, I won't go through the process, right. but it's very easy, uh -huh, right? Uh -huh. It's too simple. You take the liquid, you make it salt, and you dissolve it back into whatever the fentanyl mixes. That's it. That's it. So, uh, that, so they're buying it. Like I said, there's no need for any laboratory, you know, a two-year-old can salt something, you know, that's sure. like the organic chemistry, you know, first, in fact, right, general chemistry, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're salting it. And then uh, now who came up with the idea? These guys are sitting around messing, messing around with stuff and different guys all the time. Who knows? I don't sure. know who came up I with mean, it there's, first. I'm sure there, uh, from reading that book and just knowing, there's always been chemists that also will experiment with their own experiments uh, and you know for all you know uh, i do know there's case reports of a couple of veterinary vet, vets you know animal doctors sure that uh, were abusing xylosine okay <laughs> these guys were hardcore abusing this yeah. stuff just like regular doctors especially anesthesiologists and guys in the er are very big on abusing stuff they have access to it but xylosine uh, is right there and uh interestingly in the veterinary medicine world they keep calling it horse trank it's not a it's a big animal it's used in dogs and cats too yeah. so when you're saying horse tranquilizer again you're adding some sort of a mysterious thing to it and finally it's really out of style even in veterinary medicine mm -hmm. simply because there's much safer medications they're using now for and the they animals. use it for procedural sedation let's say a cat or a dog put its elbow out or needs some sutures taken out mm -hmm. you don't want to bring the level of sedation down to a level where you got to put put a tube down their throat yeah. because you don't need them for 10 hours to open their heart you have a minor procedure to do and it was traditionally used with either fentanyl, something like ketamine, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. I, I'm hesitant about saying that. They mix those two. They give it to the person. Now it works as uh, something that sedates you. It's also an analgesic. It's a muscle relaxant. It's a hypnotic if you were a human, probably. I don't know. So they mix it, let's say, with fentanyl or whatever uh, opiate they're using. What that does is create a situation where you can decrease the dose of both drugs mm -hmm. and get cross coverage over pain, over sedation, uh, over comfort and so on. So it's right out there. It's easy to get. They salt it. And it's, I don't think it's very often used with vets. You can ask a vet because there's new and better drugs, but it's still out there. 
Okay. So, so to be clear, because I know you described it so well, but it's it's actually not when the, when the, the skin is is affected and somebody has those welts or those things that come out from using. It's not from the actual drug. It's from parts of their body that's that uh, that they're not taking care of. I, I so you're not certain. So, and I, you know, I, it may never come out, but. I can't say for certain that X is causing Y. Okay. So I don't think anyone out there right now can say, any be. professional out there can say xylazine is specifically causing the local tissue necrosis that ends up in a chronic wound. Mm. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Uh, but in some senses for someone like me and i also deal with my patients we take care of all of our patients stuff including their wounds chronic wounds whatever it is but for someone like me or anybody that's going to manage their wound in some ways uh, the question is uh, not super important except the harm reduction approach and here's why i'll say that we're certainly not trying to make it better trank dope for consumption so yes. you know i'm not sitting here saying Boy, I got to figure out what's causing the skin lesions so people can buy more crank dope. That's, right. you know, one cent. Certainly, I, I want them to not get the skin lesions. Other than a harm reduction approach, the wound is no different than any other wound that presents itself in that clinical form, whatever that form is. It's not something weird, unique, and from Mars that needs to be treated. And you got to stop doing dope, man. Yeah. Right? Okay. That's it. Right. Yeah. Uh, maybe the guy that's selling the stuff is really trying to figure out, man, is this xylazine? I need to uh, come up with a better mixture so my sales and demand curve goes up. You know, right. I don't know. Right. But and then there's the guys that are kind of doing a harm reduction approach. Hey, if you're going to bang dope, at least snort it or eat it or something. And now I'm hearing that. Well, even if you do that, they start getting lesions at different places. So I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. And in some senses, depending how you're looking at this, it doesn't matter. I don't think we'll ever necessarily know the answer. You can't be doing dope. That lifestyle is going to give you not just those infections. It's going to give you HIV, hepatitis C, endocarditis, other soft tissue, infec soft tissue infections, uh, you, uh, you know, assault, going to jail, losing everything. So stop doing dope. Uh -huh. and, you know, and I'm, I'm saying, saying that kind of tongue in cheek because right. that's big monstrous process to go sure. through. But in some ways, that, that's how I look at it. Okay, so in comparison to, remember, it was like at least a decade, maybe a decade and a half ago, Crocodile. Mm -hmm. What's And I think it was street name was Flacco. Was that what it was? Yeah. No? Crocodile and then Flacco. Oh, okay. Yeah. Crocodile. So what's the difference between that? Was that also along the same lines? Yeah, I'm trying to remember what was in, a, and in fact, I, I think I have a video on that, and I'm trying to remember what was in, a, maybe someone can look it up, what was in Crocodile. I think that was uh, basically uh, stuff made in the kitchen, right? Uh, is that what, what the deal with that I, was? I, I think I remember that, hearing that. And, and really, uh, again, if I heard the components in it, sure? uh, again, it could be anything from a local reaction mm -hmm. of the soft tissue, because a lot of people were losing, and I think that was particular to the chemical construction of the stuff that they were uh, putting in their body. Um, I'm having a little lapse in memory here because I actually knew quite a bit about the, how, how that's uh, presented itself. But I think that was much more so from the concoction in the in the drug than um, this stuff. It's just interesting. You know, obviously, you know, 
you were mentioning like the way people got high in the 70s, the way people got high in the 60s, the way people get high in the 80s. In comparison, like there was a surge of like cocaine and crack use in the 80s more as opposed to like the hippie drugs that were really popularized uh, in the 60s and 70s. And it seems we're in 2023 right now. We've got things like Trank. A few years ago, we had Crocodile. One has to wonder, like, why would you want to do something that potentially could affect your skin in that sense? Um, I mean, you could ask the same question to a fentanyl addict. Like, why do you do a drug that all your friends are dying from? And really, I think what people are really chasing and going after is, how is it going to make me feel? Because I've got a world of issues that I don't want to face. And I want to know what this makes me feel like. Oh, that one's making everybody else die? Give it to me because it must be very powerful. I won't die. What's the psychology behind it? Like, why would somebody do something like this? In my uh, humble opinion on these issues, I think that's a great question. And um, and uh, potentially we can move towards podcasts that explore these issues. Mm -hmm. But over the years, I've uh, developed a hierarchy of the way I, I approach a patient. Sure. And it has to do with that question. And that hierarchy for me is uh, the immediate physical and physiological. I got to take care of that and look at that first, right? Mm -hmm. That's easy. Sure. Uh, and and uh, uh, and some disease processes or clinical pathological processes, that's all you got to do. Let's say you fall and break your leg. I don't even need to know who the heck you are. Just as long as there wasn't any trauma, yeah. I could fix that, send on your way. I don't need to know your name. Your, your right? That's an easy thing. It's sure. right there, X, Y, and Z. I follow the algorithm and I need to know some medical history and so on. Okay. Now we're getting to a very complex model of disease. Mm -hmm. And I have found over the years, not only do I need to know your physical clinical picture, mm -hmm. then I need to understand your intrapsychic dynamics and how you got to this place inside your immediate environment that you came up in. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, people refer to that maybe, oh, trauma, trauma, trauma. But, you know, there's quite a bit here, you know. And because for me to create an environment for you to move forward in, even as your, you know, MD doctor for mm -hmm. this, I'm dealing with something very complex and I need to have some understanding and then figure out the tools I have and give them to. But, you know, it goes beyond that. It's societal. And in fact, you can couch this not just in the physical, not just in the individual psychological intrapsychic dynamics, but I have found over the years and have started to pursue uh, couching it. I don't want to say the wrong words, but in some senses, in the fundamental structures that Freud gave us of what intrapsychic dynamics are mm -hmm. and its evolution into whatever you want to say, young uh, um, objects relations. But I have found the stuff that he said applies to society and gives us explanations for why things go wrong, when there's a pathological process, when there's a nurturing process. So the answer to your question uh, to me is... Um, it's not just the individual. Like in the, we are an organism that is evolving in the environment that we come in. And this is an extremely complex and ever-changing environment, society that we're in. And that plays and contributes just as much mm -hmm. to what I choose to do in my life and how I choose to kill myself 
as my own personal decision. I'm not saying it takes away responsibility and accountability. I never I'm saying that and I tell people, no, no, that's on you, man. Yeah. Right. But nevertheless, there's no denying. And the literature, I think, really supports this. If you start digging into everything from literary theory to social theory to social psychology to looking at the criminal justice system to political theory, everything goes hand in hand. And we create an environment for the behavior of the individual and how the individuals in that society start to behave. So I think the answer, the only answer I can give here now is this is why that I feel in some senses, every one of us is accountable and responsible for the substance abuse patient. Every one of us is accountable and responsible for the sex traffic victim. Every one of us is accountable and responsible for the impact the choices of the alcoholic makes of in his family. Because we have collectively, whether consciously or unconsciously, created a social environment and the milieu mm -hmm. for that shit to fester in the individual. Hmm. And that's my answer. That's a great answer. It makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Short answer. <laughs> you're so well spoken, and it's it's evident. You're so educated, but uh, it's kind. It, it's deep, like really, really. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah. And when you say everyone is responsible, does that mean we should be out there educating or helping or putting, trying to to, to raise awareness? What What do you think is our responsibility right, yeah. in that sense? You know, uh, uh, in terms of just substance, because, you know, I look at these issues all the same, whether it's our overcrowded prisons, whether it's our inhumane sentences, whether it's the increasing amount of crime. Uh, uh, you know, at the very least, we uh, everybody should uh, at least realize this and not be judgmental of the drug addict substance abuse patient that's all if if you if there's any one thing you can do is stop being judgmental mm -hmm. and you know i had a patient actually yesterday who's going through a fentanyl detox and i was mentioning it to you guys and i don't know what happened but presumably this may have happened and he accidentally took a 50 milligram naltrexone tab uh, tablet. Within mm -hmm. an hour, he was in florid, uh, precipitated withdrawal and ended up in the ER. I realized he went to the ER. They looked at him and, you know, this guy was suffering, hunched over. Yeah. And they send him home. This is easy treatment. He intravenous fluids, maybe a little bit of Ativan, maybe a little bit of Zofran, right? Maybe uh, uh, two liters and then make sure the guy can get up and walk. His girlfriend had to help him out of the car, uh, ED and into the car. And I don't, I'm not saying that's what necessarily happened last night. I wasn't there, sure. but it's very potential. And if there was empathy, if there was compassion, if there was not any judgment, this may not have happened. So do you think sometimes when people go to the hospital, they're just viewed as, well, this guy's just got addiction. Let's just get him along his way. It was always uh, not just get him on his way, but there, you know, one of the things that bothered me when I was uh, in academic uh, medicine, you know, I always, I've told this story before, but uh, really briefly, I remember uh, 
guy came in from like somewhere like Tehachapi or something. It's a real, uh, you know, uh, I know there's a lot of meth labs out there. And this guy used to bang dope in his shoulder. And I remember, in fact, I still have a picture of it. I used to use this for left shoulder. And uh, he showed up this day and I look and the whole thing was rotting. And there was a skin graft there, mm -hmm. right? And I said, dude, what's up? He's like, yeah, I came here before because, you know, I used to bang dope up here. And then it got infected. Then I had to get a skin graft. And I see this half skin graft that hasn't really taken hold. And his skin's open. And part of it, I can almost see his bone. And I'm kind of worried about some uh, osteo, which is a bone infection. So I'm like, dude, you got to come in. You got to come into surgery. And I, th th that guy has to do this. So I uh, order a hefty I'm like, How much dope do you use? And he told me, I think at that time, he was like, I use about two to three grams of heroin a day. Mm -hmm. Right. And what am I going to do? I said, don't worry about it. So I immediately put I put on, put him on something like eight milligrams morphine an hour. Right. You mm -hmm. know, as needed for pain. I mean, this is painful. Right. Sure. On top of that, this guy has a much lower threshold. And that's OK. What, what the heck is he going to do? Then I see surgery come out on board and I read his thing. And, uh, you know, one of my residents comes up to me and say, dude, this guy's about to bounce. I'm like, what do you mean he's going to bounce? He's going to get infection and he's going to get. And I go and look and he's like, you know, he's they put him on two milligrams of morphine an hour on much lesser pathology. You would potentially give a patient much more than that. Mm -hmm. Clinically. This guy's pain threshold or uh, is completely different than the regular person. Two, he's got serious disease that needs pain control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you took those two things that you should add up and increase his pain ma management. You decreased it to a point where he's going to leave and die. It's bizarre how we make decisions. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it's not a, your business. This guy's a drug addict and you have no business judging him. You are a clinician. You got to do this. You got to manage pain. Right, uh, it's the, used to be the fifth vital sign, and you have to do your procedures and send them home well. So yeah, there's a lot of stigma and judgment even to this day uh, in it's the horrible. hospitals. So as a former drug user and alcoholic, I, I realized even when we first started the podcast, and you you like to choose your words wisely. You don't want to label somebody as an addict. Um, I have often sat in many 12-step groups and people identify themselves as an, as an alcoholic or an addict. And I think to myself, well, are you currently addicted? Because if you're currently addicted, then you're the addict, right? Or you could say like, I'm addicted, so I'm an addict. But if you aren't, then you could say former addict. Or And a lot of people say, well, we're addicts for the rest of our lives. People in many of those communities will talk that way. Like that's just what we are. Yeah, I know, right? yeah. Uh, it's a disease. The disease is always there. Some people will say it's doing push-ups. It's just waiting to get me this and that. Um, and, and personally, as a person that has had extensive addiction in not just in, in my own life, but in my family system, I, there was, you know, it, my cousins in Iran who I've never even met in person, uh, they had addiction. So one has to wonder, like, did it just run in the family? But and being Iranian, we, we it was... Um, it was looked down upon. It was frowned upon. Definitely the stigma is more stronger, I think, in our community than anything. Last thing that any parent, especially parents that are doctors or, you know, they're accomplished in life, the, the last thing they want to do is to, to for anyone to find out that our kid has an addiction problem. I don't even want to deem him as an addict. We don't want to call him that. And none of the families and friends can find out about this stuff. We got to keep this under wraps and it's a secret, right? Um, I believe that I got to a point where I don't really care about the stigma. People can say what they want. But at this point, in this day and age, anybody can become a drug addict. 
anybody can become addicted to drugs and, and alcohol because it's out there. I mean, the neighbor could be. Your kid could be within that your own house, right? It's not like it's it's just happening to a certain demographic or individual. So um, I myself on one of my recovery pages put something up. It was some kind of, I don't even know if it was a meme. I think it was a saying and I really liked it. So I put it up and some guy came and he was like kind of going at me sideways. He was telling me like, we don't call them addicts anymore. Like that's that's definitely stigmatizing him. And I wanted to, I even told him, come on my podcast. I always want to hear people's outlooks. I, I want to, I want you to expand on that a little bit of, is it, why don't you want to refer to people? I love it though, because you, again, you opened up so many cans of worms. So you got to redirect me and shut me down. Okay. Uh, but I'll be, I'll try to be brief because you brought up the 12 step tradition. And I am aware that uh, when you go in there, you always announce yourself. Uh, um, you know, my name is Joe or whatever they say. Yeah. And I'm an addict. Okay, great. Um, uh, I won't get into the history why the term is stigmatizing, but it is. And that's how it's looked at. In interestingly, people that uh, uh, kind of uh, get on the bandwagon of what's politically correct, then they themselves become uh, quite sadistic and brutal in the way they treat people that are stepping outside of their view of what's right and wrong. And, uh, you know, I saw this a long time ago. But that being said, let's assume the term is stigmatizing, which it is from uh, historical reasons and so forth. There is, you know, I don't do 12 steps. That's not what I do. That's not my world. That's not my reality. Yeah. I'm not going to knock it down. And I'll even say in those traditions and so forth, there's quite a few things that are very valuable if digested the correct way, way by the individual that will get them in touch with themselves mm -hmm. in addition to create good relationships with the objects around them that have, uh, you know, they've created destruction in the path of their life. In that sense, a lot of these traditions are great. The problem uh, with, uh, you know, like, uh, referring to yourself as an addict or going in the same addict, I always uh, tell folks uh, uh, there's some uh, value to that part itself in this sense. I want you to realize this. Don't call yourself an addict, right? Yeah, don't, don't do that, you know, Henry or Julie or whoever. No. Don't call it. But I want you to realize this. And don't worry about me considering this as a chronic and relapsing, remitting disease that's very complex. No, no, because that itself might get you paranoid. I simply want you to understand this. This is deeply rooted in your uh, initial neural networks that were created. We call that memory, because mm -hmm. if you drive by that 7-Eleven or a severely stressful situation happens in your life, which for various reasons, you didn't learn the tools to cope with them. And this was one of your tools. It's in the memory banks. And that's what actually neuroscientists call that stuff. Memory it's, the, it's a way that you create receptors and binding and all that stuff. So it's in there deep. So what I want you to do, Joe is understand, you know, you're coming in here, you're telling me, thank you so much. You know, we just had one uh, recently and he was talking about his amazing job at the theater. He's bought a car, things are going great. At that time, I always stop him and I tell him, I'm super proud of you. And uh, every moment that you've had towards this recovery that we're talking about, you've built new neural networks and coping mechanisms. And no matter what happens in the future, you're not going to lose this. At the same time, 
always remember that in some real sense, this stuff is embedded in the way your uh, central nervous system copes. Mm. And I want you to be vigilant of that reality for the rest of your life. It's not a big deal, dude. You know, you know, you're not an addict for life. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. You know, that that's a, that's a simplified way of saying it. I'm an addict. And I understand the value of saying that because it keeps a person vigilant. Right. Mm -hmm. But let's move away from that language. One the term addict itself is stigmatizing because of historicity Two, you. You're stigmatizing yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't walk around and say, Hi, Henry. My name is Fareed. I'm a diabetic. I'm not a diabetic. But, you know, yeah. I don't walk around and say, hi, Joe. My name is Fareed. I, I, I have hypertension. Do yeah. I do that? No, no, you don't. I don't do that. Do we, but... Does anyone do that? <laughs> no. Okay. So if we're saying that, you know, let's take, let's utilize a disease model. We don't have to say what that is. There's no ontological status that matters here. I'm going to use the model. If it gives me answers and creates a situation that I can make predictions about clinical outcome and intervention, disease model is cool. I don't care what it is. Right? right. It's cool. So it does that for me. All right. Mm -hmm. So stop saying you're an addict because now you're limiting your perception. You are Joe. You've dealt with substance abuse in your life. And you know what? Everyone's dealt with different kinds of crap. All this has done. I want you to understand this has given you tools. This has given you experience. Mm -hmm. This has been a part of who you are and created the environmental exposures, experiences, pain, tribulations, and victories you've had. Stop calling yourself an addict. <laughs> you had issues with substances for various reasons that we can get into. It's academic. It doesn't matter. You just need to know that. You've had a difficult time coping and reaching for tools to deal with life. And I remind every single one of them, you know, if you look at cluster B personality disorders sure. and uh, some of these, something like narcissism, one of the things people don't realize, and that's why these pathologies come up, reality is taxing. Mm. Living life is hard. Right. Coping with the environmental influences at the same time, trying to, place your eye, eye for read on your eye page into that system of objects in this world and the relationships that you have is hard. Hmm. Give yourself some grace, dude. You've been coping for one year, two years, six months, three months. You've gained tools and it's not just you. It's tough. And all of, and I'm going to tell you right now, it's never going to get easier and shit's always going to come at you. But you know what? You ha don't have a choice. Uh, you do. You can lie down and die, but that's not what we want to do. The fun is trying to overcome it. And that's why I said, try and move them away from, I'm an addict. No, mm -hmm. I, I go into this long you know, I, discussion I, about what I think it, what happens too, speaking from experience too, people get sober they whether they're in treatment or it's recommended that they do go to build a, a support system a community go to this if you're uh, you've been using heroin go to ha heroin anonymous go to cma crystal meth anonymous i spent a lot of time in those rooms really yeah i think i did a lot of crystal meth we can that's another subject but yeah, um, we gotta get into but that. um but i think that the same way i mean people get conditioned easy and i'm not again i love the 12 steps saved my life most definitely to help me find myself and, and carry on with, with the steps and help others. Um, I think when you sit in a meeting enough times and people are 
it's recommended that you identify as an addict to be to even be there. Yeah. Um, then it becomes easier for them to just claim that. Hey, listen, I'm an addict. You're an addict. I'm an addict. Let's. We're all addicts. We're all recovering. We're recovered. Some of us say recovered. Some of us say recovering. But it becomes a way for them to. They're. They don't even really know that they're stigmatizing themselves. They're just basically. That's what we learned. That's what what kind of environment we we got sober in. So that's just what we call ourselves. You know, you pointed out to something wonderful there. So that's happening. But there's also something else going on, a phenomenon that's common to human beings. And when I go to the Costa Mesa area, you know, there, there's, you know, they used to call that the rehab Rivera. There's yeah. all kinds of, you know, crap. Down right. There. So all of a sudden a coffee shop and, you know, 50 people might walk by. I know the kids that are in recovery or in the home. You know why? Mm-hmm. Every goofball is dressed the same, right? <laughs> so now yeah. you've created a subcultural identification. And that's exactly what I want you to get away from. I want you to find meaning in you. And so it's a natural human tendency. And when you said that about folks, uh, you know, everyone, oh, I'm an addict, I'm an addict. So, you know, we are always looking for black and white, simple answers. You know why? Remember, reality is complex. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, when you look at the, the phenomena of sports in America or in the world, wh- why is there popularity? Why, you know, because we want easy, digestible, identifiable answers. You know, those guys are the bad guys, The whoever the team is. I, I don't follow any sports. The Raiders are the bad guys. So we're all going to get together. It doesn't matter if, you know, she's an alcoholic. I lost my job. Uh, the government's after me, and I'm on my third strike. On this Sunday, you know, the 20 of us are going to get together. We're all going to wear the same jersey. We're going to drink ourselves to oblivion. But you know what? There's, you know, for that moment. Folks find comfort and meaning in identifying and getting simple answers. Right. And this has translated in places it shouldn't translate into, whether it's politics or the addiction recovery community. And what we should work towards is pushing everybody to create individual identities and comfort in themselves, whatever the past trauma is that made you kind of screwy in the way that you needed that identification yes. and group herd mentality. And what you described kind of is exactly what's going on there in addition to stigmatizing him without knowing it. Right. Wow. Uh, and so think about that. Yeah, I will uh, think about uh, that. It's, uh, it's this, a heavy thing. These conversations are great. I'm really, this, I'm enjoying this. Thank you. Really. Likewise, I'm enjoying it too. What's uh, Are there any questions today? So we had a question back Further, um, I think it was Rach Bill asked, what are doctors doing to combat the uh, xylazine? What are doctors doing to combat the xylazine? Yeah, what are they doing to... Epidemic? If it's even an epidemic. Yeah, not yet. Combat it in the sense of, you know, uh, I want to make sure I understand the questions. Uh, Are they talking about up front before it hits the streets or what, uh, you know, what they're doing with their patients? Uh, yeah, that's a fantastic question. So, so how are doctors treating? Uh, yeah, I'll be really qu- uh, quick about that. So, uh, keep in mind we don't have uh, human data on this issue, but I-, I can tell you this: I don't want to get into receptor pharmacology too much. You know, it is an alpha two agonist. But uh, one of the things this stuff does, 
I think a lot of people out there know clonidine. Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. closest thing, even though it's a different drug class, is things like clonidine, visine. That's mm -hmm. actually uh, the same thing as well. There's kind of stuff out there. Uh, it's clonidine, except one thing. Uh, this stuff only decreases what's called sympathetic outflow from the central nervous system. All that means, guys all remember the fight or flight thing, right? Yes. Bring it down. What's the extreme of that? Sedation, mm. right? So now what you're doing is making it so when they're taking, the, you know, when someone banks them by fentanyl, you're so sedated, you're not aware of choking or the fact that you're not breathing and your evolutionary responses to breathing aren't there. You're like, man, it's cool. You know, I'm getting, you know, I'm at 60% oxygen saturation and taking three breaths a minute. Who cares? That's what it's doing. So that being said, it's hitting alpha two agonists in the central nervous system. And initially, I think some of the thoughts was uh, when, uh, uh, you know, as far as an overdose of this stuff goes, you got to treat the fentanyl first, right? Mm -hmm. So you got to hit them with the Narcan and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. With this stuff, there is no acute antidote for the overdose. I'm going to answer the overdose part first. We don't have that, but you do need to, you know, if you have rescue training and so forth like that, do all that stuff. This is not the place for me to teach. There's a rescue position. You have to be to clear the mouth. But essentially what it comes down to is clinical support. Mm -hmm. And so for the clinician that's in that situation, ER guys or whatever, it's really watching your O2, making sure you're breathing, saturation. And there's no antidote. Now, acute withdrawals. Is there acute withdrawals? Uh, it seems that mm -hmm. from what's going on out there, uh, the acute withdrawals seem to, the majority of them are severe anxiety. Why? Because this is, again, sympathetic outflow. Now, that being said, they last two, three, four, five days. But more importantly, when someone stops, we have to remember a large portion of this community has underlying anxiety secondary to other reasons. And a lot of them are also banging meth, which, yeah. got, you know, you can have a. So we need to be careful with that. But really, so far, the very first line they're using for acute withdrawals and so forth is uh, benzodiazepines. Mm -hmm. You got to be careful with that because this is not like you're switching someone with what we call a cross tolerance who's been using Xanax for 10 years. Now I got to put them on something like clonopin volume and, and take it, consider how long I'm going to taper that. This is acute and short term. Mm -hmm. So for, thus far, they're uh, managing the withdrawals with the, the overdose. There's no antidote, supportive care, take care of the opiates, right? Mm -hmm. The withdrawals, acute withdrawals in the hospital, they've tried things like clonidine because it hits the same receptor. Mm -hmm. What they found was as soon as I give you something like clonidine or a related drug, yeah. your blood pressure drops to nothing. Now I got to give you blood pressure support because the doses don't match. So clonidine is there to you know calm you down, except you need way more clonidine than what the acute uh, withdrawals of xylosine might be like. So it's, uh, they're using benzos, low dose. Uh, and then as far as the long-term managing, you know, withdrawals and getting someone, obviously you got to deal with the opiate part first. You got to deal with the benzo part first. Long-term, you know, I think the best answer is one has to discern if the anxiety is secondary from xylosine, which we just don't have that kind of data yet that someone's been using xylosine every day for a year. They come off of it. Well, it's going to, they're going to have anxiety from the withdrawal of the xylosine for the next six months. We don't know that. Mm -hmm. So I think clinicians should be really careful of the medication they choose 
you know, after you deal with the opiates, after you make your decisions about the meth to discern, is this anxiety truly related to xylazine withdrawals or not? And I, I hope that answers the questions. We would overdose acute and long-term. There's one more question. Uh, Kimmy BBB asks, uh, Dr. B, my question is how does tranco cause necrotizing fasciitis? Yeah, we discussed that quite a bit. You want to you repeat the question? Because I don't yeah. know that they So can the that. question was, how does trank dope cause necrotizing fasciitis? And that's uh, uh, that essentially, I think, uh, I don't know. If, so necrotizing fasciitis is a technical term, right? And that stuff will uh, eat you alive and you will be dead in 12 to 15 hours. It's a, you can think of it in terms of soft tissue infections. You can think of it as this extreme end of the spectrum, right? If they're asking that, I don't know. And the answer is everything I said earlier about trank dope causing soft tissue infections. If they're asking in general about soft tissue infections, the answer is still the same. I don't know, except what I discussed earlier. And we talked a lot about that. Uh, we are, you know, there could be multiple causes of soft tissue infection. So wherever it is on that spectrum of soft tissue infection, and even if it's necrotizing fasciitis, we don't know. But since I mentioned necrotizing fasciitis, if you're a diabetic, you're at increased risk for that. But um, that's a different story. There's some news reports where when they're, when they're talking about Trank, they are saying, um, and it's a drug that Narcan cannot right. bring somebody back from. So are they just assuming automatically that uh, this is fentanyl, and but it's a form of fentanyl, but it can't, Narcan doesn't work for it? Or are they, because they don't really go into depth on these news reports. They're just basically uh, displaying, broadcasting, talking about this new drug, Trank, which isn't really that new, but it is, it's become more popular. So what what's that all about? I love you said this because to me, this is us uh, re, uh, uh, really, uh, it's a public service that what you just asked mm -hmm. in, in my mind. And so, uh, and I'll be brief. Uh, so opiates uh, in, in terms of the central nervous system and respiratory stuff hit what's called new receptors, right? Decreases your respiratory drive. In, in that mixture, now you've thrown xylazine. Xylazine attenuates opiate receptors, but does not have anything to do with mu opiate receptors. It hits other things, but one of the places it hits is called uh, alpha-2 receptors in the presynaptic neuron. All that means is that when you put in Narcan into someone, you might reverse the effect of the opiates, mm -hmm. but it won't reverse the effects of the Narcan. And I just touched on that about overdoses. Yes, you did mention That being said, what I want to tell folks if you come in, if you are in a situation where you're going to be uh, put, traditionally administering Narcan, and if you'd have no idea about what Trank Dope is, proceed as before. Give the Narcan, mm. right? You got to treat that. And then, uh, you know, proceed as you would in any kind of emergent situation. I'm not, I, I don't want to give any particular directives on how to go about this in this setting, but I certainly want to say this. Never look at it as someone that's probably trank dope. I'm not going to give Narcan. Uh, you know, I want to say something minimal mm -hmm. and at the same time keep people doing what they've traditionally been doing because you certainly don't want to cause an overdose death because someone thinks it doesn't work on that. You shouldn't think that way. You should assume whatever you assumed before, if you were going to assume it's just fentanyl and proceed as you usually would with the Narcan. 
and other algorithms that you were going to participate in. Does that help? Does that make sense? With Absolutely. That? Yep. Any more questions? Yeah, one more. Okay. Uh, from Dara Duval. Okay, what's the question? It's uh, what help is there for those tapering and withdrawing from Benzo slash Xanax? What help is there for those tapering? And withdrawing from Benzo. And withdrawing Xanax. from Benzo Xanax. I'll be brief. Uh, Xanax? Yes. I'll be really brief on this one as, as we uh, digress. Uh, uh, don't, I, will, I will say one thing that is universal on that issue. Uh, in my opinion, and I think if you read the literature on the ruling bodies of the planet about how to manage with someone with benzo addiction and taper, there's nobody that's going through a benzo taper that should suffer. This is a, a slightly different than opiates, not that they should suffer, but uh, it needs to be meticulous and delicate in managing a taper of a benzo uh, addict or someone addicted to them or for whatever reason, if the indication is for them to come off and uh, uh, whether it's, you know, Xanax or whatever, that decision is on the clinician. So I recommend find a clinician that truly understands uh, acute, long-term, chronic, and the potential for you to get off the benzo you're on. And this is a very complex thing that takes a very individualized approach. But one thing that should never happen is the client, for the most part, should not be going through benzodiazepine withdrawals of any kind. That's inhumane, and it's certainly not recommended by any national or international clinical organization that addresses issues such as this. And, and that's about all I, I can say in this context here. Very well. So we had a lot of content, we, well, we a lot did. of good stuff to talk about. Um, um, uh, is there anything else you want to talk about or we could wrap it up? And I definitely want to do this more often and talk about many other different types of substances as well as, you know, you just have such a expansive wealth opinions. of knowledge. No, a lot um, of knowledge. You I, I appreciate that. And you're great because uh, uh, not only I know you also have quite a bit of knowledge in uh, this area, a lot of experience, uh, but uh, you're very honed in and focused on a very important, uh, you distill the issues into some of the most important things. And it, it was a pleasure. I love doing this. I do want to do this uh, more often. You know, our issue and me and Parham's issues have always been time. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I would love to do this. I would, uh, you know, maybe even figure out in the future somehow where um, folks can come on uh, and ask questions. And interact and, uh, with us. Which they can on StreamYard. Yes. We've yeah. done that a lot before. But yeah, I had a great time. And I think we did justice here because I think some of this information is important to get out Absolutely. there. Absolutely. And it's critical Absolutely. Uh, it potentially save lives or get someone into treatment. And um, that's what we're all about, huh? Awesome. Yeah, most definitely. So I want to thank anybody that uh, was listening today on the live stream. Obviously, you'll find us in many different platforms. I have a whole slew of guests lined up uh, coming up now that we have the studio all in, in effect and in progress. Um, and it's it's been exciting to have you here. And I will continue to uh, build on our relationship, as I told you the other day when we were talking. And uh, and I want to have you back as a regular guest, most definitely. And we'll work together closely. Likewise, it'd be my pleasure. Again, we got to sort out the time yeah. and figure this out. But it was uh, I really enjoyed it. And thank you for everything Likewise. you put into this. Same. Thank you all. And we're going to tune out now. Bye. See you guys. Peace. Bye, TikTok. I know you're there.